Good morning, everyone. My name is Dan Mike. I've been asked to share the sermon this morning uh, from the book of Zephaniah. We've been, as a community, studying uh, 12 minor prophets. On this blue Bible, it's page 665, six, six, no, 766. But if you have the striped ones, the old ones, it's on 665, pretty close to 666. It's easy to see the connection. I'd like to also say good morning to those of you sitting out in the garage. I know that that's never been acknowledged before, but enjoy the cookies and coffee <laughs> and the television. Um, okay, what am I doing? Okay, the, the sermon. Got it. Um, today, we've, Will and I have decided to, do, um, to, to break it up into two messages in, in a sense, and so I'm going to share for a little while, and we're going to take a break for prayer and uh, communion, and so then after that, I'll have some closing thoughts as well. Two for the price of one. I'm just make it so you, you don't have to go to church next week if you have two messages today. Don't tell anyone I said that. I'm going to be reading here, so please, if you're willing to stand with me for the reading of Zephaniah, I'm going to start at chapter 1 and verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. All right. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. During the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away birds of the sky and fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. I will destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal, worship in this place, the very names of idolatrous priests who bow down on rooftops to worship the starry hosts at night, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech, those who turn away from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him, be silent before the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated those that he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the, king, and the king's sons, all who, those clad in foreign clothes. On the day I will punish and avoid all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. And on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up to the fish gate, a wailing from the new quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Well, you who live in the market district, all you merchants will be wiped out. All who trade with silver will be destroyed. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with the lamp and punish those who are complacent, who are like the wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, neither good or bad. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Pretty much takes no explanation. I, uh, this short three chapters in the book of Zephaniah, at least that's how they get you to preach on this. It's just three chapters, Dan, you know, I, what does it say? Well, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Okay. All right, so, you know, there's a thing going around um, that, that says we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at the Old Testament. This stuff is just too out there. 
and uh, we should just stay to the New Testament. And I get it. I'm pragmatic, too. I mean, there are times when I think, you know, we should just cut to the chase. Didn't Jesus say things like, all of the law and the prophets are going to rest on loving God and loving your neighbor? I mean, isn't that really what we're here for? And, and amen to that. Sometimes I think that we just need to dig in a little bit beneath the surface and see uh, what's going on and then translate that forwards and, 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 and receive with humility God's word, God's heart. And at Crossroads, we do take a little bit of time to dig in and find out what's going on because Zephaniah is speaking to a culture. He is speaking at a time. So let's just think out loud a little bit about what he's, what's going on. All right, so here's some of the ideas that I have about this. Um, in, in verse one, we see the longest genealogy of any of the prophets. Why would someone do this? I think that in, in their day, this is kind of a credential. It's a stamp on, on, on your reputation to say, look, this is where I'm coming from. And he actually ties himself um, in the days of Josiah, but he's also a relative of Josiah in a sense because then he traces his lineage back to Hezekiah, the king. This is very important to think about this gives us good grips on what time he's speaking, but also where he's coming from. Remember Hezekiah. He's one of the good guys. His name means strong of the Lord. Hezak, Hezekiah. He fortified Jerusalem. He's the guy that made Hezekiah's tunnel. Go figure. If you go to Israel, even to this day, you can see this tunnel. It's actually, besides the point, but it's pretty cool. They had two people two groups digging on either side underground. They actually somehow found each other underground to get water into Jerusalem before they were sieged so they could survive. Hezekiah fortified Jerusalem. He also took all the idols that he could possibly take down and uh, reformed the worship in Israel. Hezekiah is one of the good guys. Unfortunately, his son Manasseh, as Rod shared two weeks ago, is an apple that couldn't have fallen farther from the tree. Manasseh, during his tenure as king, committed mass murder and basically undid everything when it comes to idols that his dad undid. Asherah, Baal, Molech, he, speaking of Molech, he even sacrificed one of his sons to Molech. This is a despicable thing. I mean, when you really get into the worship service of Molech, they would, they would beat their drums and play their trumpets so loud for one reason, so that they wouldn't hear the cries of the children that they were sacrificing. Manasseh was not a good guy. Jewish tradition, um, there's, a, there's a story about how Manasseh was actually the person who killed the great prophet Isaiah by ordering him to be put into a hollowed out tree and then ordering people to saw the tree into pieces. Manasseh reigned, unfortunately, he holds the record for the longest reign of the southern kingdom of, of all the kings, 55 years. And that's notable because in 55 years, there's a long time to influence a culture. It's a long time to build up a worldview, a long time to get, set cultural norms and give people permission to do things that, and, 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 and traditions start to develop. And, and this is the culture that uh, Zephaniah is speaking into. After Manasseh died, his son Ammon reigned for two years, and then his young son, Josiah, became king. So Josiah 
is, uh, is actually, if you read in 2 Chronicles 34 about Josiah, he does try and reform somewhat. But then there's also a very famous story of what happened in, in the reign of Josiah, and you probably know this. Just gives you a glimpse of the, of the times that they're living in. They've completely lost the Bible. They don't, they've lost, the, they even know what the Bible is. There's somebody, uh, you know, digging around somewhere and pulls this book out and starts reading and brings it to Josiah, and they're like, this is the Bible. And what happens is, even though he had made two attempts to reform the country until then, he still rends his garments and says, I, can't, I mean, he can't believe how far off that he is. Once he reads the scriptures and actually what's going on. The reason why I bring that point up is you might be aware of this, you might not be aware of this, but there is a trend in our culture, like I said before, to not only throw away the Hebrew scriptures, but throw away any of the scriptures that we, we don't agree with and that, we don't, uh, that don't make us feel good, that don't serve our, our immediate purposes. And I'm all about, like, that whole section last week that when Rod was talking about doubt and he was talking about wrestling with God, I'm all about coming to the Lord with your uh, concerns, coming to the Lord and being honest about where you are. I'm all about taking the Bible and wrestling with it and saying, what are you talking about? What does this mean? But looking at the things that are developing in the culture that Zephaniah is speaking into and looking at the reaction that God has, I would just ask you to count the cost of what it would cost to lose the Bible, what it would cost to say, you know what, we don't need this anymore. This is what's going on in their day. What about the type of literature? Well, anytime, and this is what I would say, anytime you see verses that say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, rent, I'm gonna sweep away everything from the face of the earth, anytime you see this, the day of the Lord theme or uh, all people, heaven and earth, being like, like lined up before God and judged, we're talking, this is apocalyptic literature. An apocalyptic literature is uh, something that, again, our culture doesn't love to read because it makes you feel a little uncomfortable. It's meant to expose. It's meant to confront, and it's meant to comfort. The confrontation, you can see here, it's, it's frustration. It's God confront. He's angry. He's frustrated by the way things are going. And we could go around and around about moral relativity and if God's allowed to have emotions or how this all works. And if God, you know, was a better God, maybe he wouldn't have created people like this. But it comes down to creator and creation to me. If there is a creator who has a plan and a purpose for creation, it would be very frustrating to see a creation abusing freedom, abusing itself, abusing each other, abusing everything possible. We know this. I was watching a mini doc uh, this week on this guy named Antonio Stradivari. Anybody know what this is? He, he invented, or he's the creator or crafter of Stradivarius violins like the most renowned violins of all time, right? Uh, one just sold recently for $16 million. 
I started looking into this, you know, and uh, there's one in uh, Oxford in a, in a museum called the Messiah. <laughs> and it's 300 years old, and the estimated value is $20 million. And get this, it's never been played. Don't put me in a room with that. It's got mythical powers to me at this point. Like you, you one time in the heavens open, you know, I don't even know how to play. I'll try, you know, get that thing going. I mean, imagine how frustrating Antonio would be to know. One of his things that he created has just been sitting there, not being used. But the frustration that I read in the Zephaniah is not merely a frustration of unused potential. So I'm thinking a little farther here. Imagine you're Antonio Stradivari, and you're walking down the road, minding your own business, just excited about life, and you hear a tennis match going on to the left. You look aside, and you see someone playing tennis, but they're not using rackets. One of them's using a Stradivarius violin. What kind of, I mean, what kind of emotion were you going to have at that? I mean, how's this going to feel when you see this abuse of your creation? Frustrating. If you're not frustrated enough, as you continue to watch, he's a poor sport. He's always cheating, and he throws balls at the children who go to pick up the balls uh, that, that are waiting on the sides, and he, he always uh, mocks the other players, and he's just an all-around bad guy. It's frustrating. Not to mention your daughter has a crush on him because he's a bad boy. <laughs> Against your better judgment, you can't stop her from uh, swooping. <laughs> There's a time and a place to say enough's enough. How much more so? I mean, is this, this feeling that God could have of frustration, of anger, of the same, I mean, I mean, when you read this, there is a temptation to say, you know what, this is, um, this is just a, an analogy or something, and it's not really meant to tell us exactly how God feels, but when does that ever, a th how does, when is that ever a thing? And I just created an analogy to tell you a little bit about reality. I mean, that's what language does. It falls short. It just, if I say my wife is as beautiful as the sunset, I'm not saying, well, we all know it's, she's less beautiful than the sunset. The point of saying it is, is that's the closest thing I could come to. You know, like it's, it's not, it doesn't serve your purpose to say this is a little, this is less than how God is frustrated. The purpose of reading this and seeing this is, is actually, these are just the words. This is what apocalyptic literature is trying to do. It's trying to bring us all to a place that exposes something that's very frustrating, and that God hates. Apocalyptic literature and the caution therein is like arson. It's a, it's, a, it's a burning down of something that's been built up. And the prophets that write this are oftentimes killed for it. Some of the critique that I find ironic of apocalyptic literature nowadays that say, you know what, we don't need this. We need to be thinking about the end time. We need to be thinking about the day of the, what are we talking about? There are poor. There are people in this world we need to be, uh, that are marginalized and oppressed that we need to be going out and, and helping and serving. But the reality is, what Bible verses do you think mean the most to people who are marginalized and oppressed? I'm sure 
He leads me beside still waters is meaningful to someone who is, is oppressed and someone who's experienced injustice. But wouldn't it be just a little more powerful to hear of a God who says, of a God that exists, who's, who looks at injustice and says no, who says this is not the plan, who says there's a time and a place where this is gonna come to an end. Apocalyptic literature is a caution. It is a warning, and we don't like warnings. We don't like reading the label on the back that says don't do this, oh, you know, I'm a professional, I can do this, you know, whatever, I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an adult, I can do, you know, we don't love to hear a warning. But the judgment of the Lord begins with the house of the Lord, Peter 4, 17. You know this. Even people who are in the house of God can experience the warning and the judgment of the Lord. I mean, it's something that we need to be thinking about. Sometimes God's judgment, which arguably might be a part of our current culture, is to allow people to have what they want. Will we hear the caution of Zephaniah. There's three different groups that Zephaniah mainly speaks to, and so I'd like to just sort of give a running commentary of those three groups and, the, and just some of the contrast to the response of the Lord. And if there's anything in your heart or mind that is sort of lining up with those, I'll give you some time to pray about it and think through it here halfway through. The first thing uh, that's sort of creeping into their culture that gets um, addressed in my mind here is idolatry. I know it seems like we talk about this every week, but maybe it's something we need to talk about every week. At the end of verse three, I will sweep away the birds of the sky and fish of the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. Verse 4b, I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of idolatrous priests. Verse 5, those who bow down on the roofs, the astrologists, and worship the starry hosts. Those who swear by the Lord and also who swear by Moloch. He continues on to, to say, those who turn, this, this leads to the same thing. Those who turn back away from the Lord, those who neither seek him nor inquire of him. Idolatry is always going to lead to this. It's going to start tearing us away from not only, okay, not only just our, our lives are going to suffer. We'll get to that. But our relationship with God is the most important thing that I can think of is my relationship with God. And idols are constantly driving a wedge between us and God. We need to take a time and evaluate ourselves or ask our friends and family, where is the line? Am I pouring my affection, time, and resources out on a thing, or am, is it, is, when is it becoming an idol for me? We need to hear where this leads to, like in verse 10. Cries from the fish gate, the, the place where small business is done. Wailing from the trendy new quarter. Loud crash from the hills and wailing from the market district and everybody who works at Amazon or, or Uber and uh, all of the, the, the big business things in this world, the, the idolatry will lead to corruption. It will lead to, in the end, devastation. Devastation of our plans, devastation of our families, devastation of things that we care about. 
But in here's kind of how you start to figure out, is there an idol in my life? There's always a promise being made by an idol. And start to track down the promises that were, that were uh, actually, that are driving our lives. Baal will tell you, just give me a sacrifice, just sacrifice for me and I will give you control. I'll control your future. I'll let, I will help you with, with the, have control over the end of your life. It's going to be okay. Just do some sacrifice for me. Sacrifice for me your time. Sacrifice for me some money. Give, give to me. I promise you I'll give you control. Asherah, she's going to promise you some, uh, that you're going to feel satisfied. She's going to promise you, especially through a sexual ethic, that you've, you just sacrificed for her. Maybe get the right look, get the right body, get the right feel. I promise you, I'm going to satisfy you. I'm going to get you what you want. Molech, I'm gonna pr- I promise you for, uh, that, that you'll have fertility. I promise if you just do this, this, and this for me, this is gonna, I, I will give you what you want. All of them are empty promises. All of these, all of following idols will lead to devastation. And apocalyptic literature, especially here in Zephaniah, is a call for us to wake up and see the fruit of following idols. Is there a wake of devastation of relationships in your, pa- in your rear view mirror? Is there the faint, distant cries of devastation in your future? And you know it. If just one thing in your life or in your plan that, that falls apart, will it show you if, you're li- if you have been uh, trusting the promises of Baal or the promises of an idol? Those things are kind of easy to see in a sense if we're, if we're, if we're honest. But uh, what happens in verse 12, I think, is something that sneaks up on us a little bit. Spiritual apathy. The word picture that's given here is this wine left on its dregs. This is a, a, a wine that has been fermenting too long. It's been sitting there, unused, turns into something undrinkable. It's not good. It's a nasty drink. You know, okay. So, I mean, I can, this analogy is really profound. I mean, in a culture of consumerism, of consuming spiritual truth, of consuming all kinds of things, there's, there comes a point where sometimes we get just so, like, fermented. Like, everything is just sitting there for so long that there's just, it's starting to spoil, Look what the actual prayer or the articulation is after that. People who think the Lord will do nothing, good or bad. This is describing an apathy between someone's relationship with God and themselves. Do we need a wake-up call and look in the mirror and say, have I been treating God as though I think he's not gonna do anything good or bad? This will lead to, I mean, this points to uh, moral relativity. It points to an erosion of values, an erosion of uh, fervency. I mean, is there any unction or fervency in our relationship with the Lord anymore? Or is it something where it's just sort of a shrug and we say, I don't know. He's not going to really do anything good or bad. It's not really, he's not really part of my life that much. It's a Sunday thing. But really, I've got the uh, rest of the week taken care of. Good or bad, doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe there's a stronger pull in your life towards idol. And that might be leading you to feeling like you're looking at the Lord in an apathetic way. 
Maybe today it's time to look, at, uh, look in the mirror and, and ask Zephaniah to call us out, wake us up and say, you know what, broad is the path that leads to destruction. There are many people who, uh, who go down that path. But the voice, of the voice of Baal that's enticing us is never going to satisfy and it's never going to get us to the place that the voice of our shepherd will take us. The voice of our shepherd says there's a narrow path. Few find it. The path isn't picking up idols. It's picking up a cross. The path that our shepherd calls us down is not one of mere self-preservation. It's actually the opposite. It's one that says, for the sake of the world, uh, I'm not gonna do the necessarily logical thing. I'm just going to trust my shepherd. I'm gonna follow him, and it might cost me everything. It might cost me my life. It might cost me my comfort. It might cost me uh, all the things that the world has been promising me. But But the promise of Jesus is, is if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for him, you will find it. There will be a substance there that's unexplainable, but it's coming from the source of creation. It's coming from the living God. Maybe today we need to take out a piece of paper. We need to write down idols in my life that I need to let go. The second thing uh, that I'm looking at here uh, is most of chapter 2, verses 4 into verse 15, um, is this national or these nations are kind of being exposed and indicted. All the nations that are in their relevant world, they've had four out of five of the Philistine coastal cities, Moab, Amman, you've got Assyria, Nineveh, even Africa gets a shout out in verse 12. And the thing that strikes me about this is verse eight, you hear a quote from the Lord. He says, I have heard the insults, Moab. I have heard the taunt. All right, two things that, I, that I'd like to just put before you um, about, about the insults made against my people and the threats made against their land. Didn't Brene Brown say something like, whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words who never hurt me doesn't know what they're talking about? Like, I resonate with that. I mean, I've been beat up a lot. (laughs) I have older brothers. Uh, You kind of get over it. But the things that stick with you are the words sometimes that people speak. There's a lot of critique and there's a lot of words uh, spoken against the church right now. And I just want to say to you briefly, um, it hurts because a lot of times it's true. The critique that we hear about the hypocrisy and about the malfeasance and about everything that's going on in the church, sometimes it just hurts because it's true kind of thing. And that's fine. Hear the rebuke of the world in in a sense if it can help us grow. But here's where I will draw a line. And I think the Lord would have us draw this line as well. The world can never speak to your identity. That's what the devil does. Remember what he said to the Lord? If you really are. If you really are, prove it. And here's the thing. We have nothing to prove when it comes to our identity. Actually, the way we prove our adoption is, in, is by not proving it. The way we approve our adoption is in the way that we rest in it and the way that we receive our adoption from the Lord and we say, you know what, this is just who I am. I know that I'm flawed, but God loves me. We have nothing to prove about our identities. I would also add a second thing to this as well. We can never use these verses as an actual um, weapon against people who call us out and, dis- and, 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 and critique us. 
Romans 12, 19 says that vengeance is mine, I will repay. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Our call is not to fight back against people who are critiquing us or calling us out or insulting us. Blessed are you when people insult you, who hurl all kinds of false things against you, for so they did to the prophets. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the people who enters into that and says, you know what? I'm gonna forgive, I'm gonna love, and I'm gonna woo you because they'll know that we are Christ's disciples. Not by how good we can argue. Not by how often we can prove that we are right. But by our love. The, sec- the third indictment here is on Jerusalem. Look at verse, uh, chapter three, verses one through five. I uh, interpret this to be the spiritual leadership, the remnant of spiritual leadership in the southern kingdom, specifically. Um, And so this is one I wanna pay somewhat close attention to because you guys know my favorite nickname for Grand Rapids is GR Jerusalem. It's just because it's a bullseye for like this, this area, this place, I mean, Everyone knows when I travel about Grand Rapids because of the books and because of the churches and because of the past. I mean, the church is here. This is a city of priests, which is a really cool thing, but it's a great responsibility. Anytime you have a concentration of a, of a group of people, there, there's, there's a potential to create hierarchy, to create a power and then abuse the power. So let's just skim through uh, these, these verses to see kind of the critique here and evaluate ourselves. Woe to you, city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. You obey no one. You accept no correction. No longer trust the Lord or draw near to God. Your officials are like roaring lions. Your rulers like evening wolves, leaving nothing for the morning. Your prophets are unprincipled and treacherous people. Or priests are profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. May it never be a list of how it describes us in this church or in this city. It doesn't describe, this to me does not in any way describe the light of the world, the city on a hill. It kind of describes, okay, just Go with me on this. It kind of sounds like what happens with um, like a corporate business world, cutthroat, dog-eat-dog kind of uh, place. And if we're not careful, decisions can be made where churches can turn into something like that, where you have competition, where you have hierarchy, where you have abuse of power, where you, where you, where you make decisions, and, and then things just turn into the same as like the way it is in the world. We have a group of people who might be like consumers, and then some people who are marketing, you know, <laughs> marketers, and like trying to sell the God product, and if the God product isn't good enough for me, I'm going to take my business somewhere else, or investors, stock, stockholders, where it's like, no, I'm invested in this place, and you better do what I want you to do, or else I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out of it. You know, all these back and forth things can happen in the church if we're not careful, We could take our eye off the ball and turn this into something that seems like every time you turn around, there's a wolf, there's a lion, or there's treachery, or there's some sort of uh, dissension or argument. The, the, The church does not have employees and employer relationship with each other or CEO and and business. I mean, it is 
brothers and sisters, as children of God, we have a leader who is our shepherd. We need to band together and actually, uh, you know, I could go on on this for, for a while, but consider your calling. It is a holy calling to be a city of priests. We are not going to reduce our holy calling to something like the world or like a merely just a, a God product that we're selling. So I would like to, to call you to prayer uh, just for three or five minutes. Uh, Will's gonna sing a song. We have set communion out. If you feel like you want to take communion during this time, I would encourage you to do that and to just pray through some of this stuff, write some things down, but do, what, you know, do whatever makes you feel comfortable at this time. I want to call you to just sort of read uh, what's on my heart is the first three verses of chapter two. Gather together, gather yourselves together, shameful nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like wind-blown chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes, seek the Lord, all you humble in the land, all you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you'll be sheltered in the day of the Lord's anger. I'd like to encourage you to seek the Lord in this time. Lent might be over, but summer's just starting. Maybe we need to do like a Lent call in the summer as well. Seek the Lord. Hear the caution of the prophet Isaiah and, and just rend your hearts before him and say, is there any remnant of idolatry in me? Do you need to speak to my identity? Do you need to speak to um, my ethic of, of being a priest or, or, or what? Just speak to me. And I'll just play my card. I started seeking the Lord with humility a, when I was a teenager, and it started by taking the Bible seriously and asking the Lord with humility to speak to me. And I believe even now he will if you ask him to do that as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, just continue to convict those whom you love. In your kindness, lead us to repentance and help us to see uh, what's really going on in some of our hearts. For the sake of your kingdom, we accept your challenge, we accept your rebuke, and, and we wanna be a creation that honors your image and your likeness. So um, just continue to speak to us. chapter 3 and verse 9. Then I will purify the lips of the people that call on the name of the Lord. They may serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Africa. My worshipers, my scattered people will come and bring me offerings. On that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me because I've removed from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I will leave within you meek and humble, and the remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong, tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouth. They'll eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, o Lord, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. 
He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they'll say to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion. Don't let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves you will take great delight in you. In rest will show you his love and he will sing over you with rejoicing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed feast, which is a burden and reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppress you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exile. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have been suffered shame. And at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortune before your very eyes, says the Lord. Can we just let a win be a win? <laughs> Gosh. I have a lot of baggage, you know, when it comes to this day of the Lord and return, the Lord, apocalyptic stuff personally. Um, I don't know, man. I just have an early memory of watching this movie called The Thief in the Night, and it was just very scary to me. I maybe watched it too early. I, I remember at kids' camp. I was at a kids' camp. So what we got to do. And they shut off all the lights in the middle of the service and had the counselors yelling and screaming and then turn the lights back on. And they're like, that's what hell's gonna be like. <laughs> it's like, good grief. I'm pretty sure I just stormed out. I don't like getting scared, okay? I, <laughs> I've always been a walkout kind of guy. Um, there's this song we used to sing, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And it was a cool, I mean, it was a cool song back when we were, singing it, but it just continued to reaffirm this thing in me, this fear of like, I might, might not be ready. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, even uh, Brad, Brad Claver's bachelor party, I was late to going because I was doing something else, and I got lost because it was dark out, and they're out in this cabin, you know, and, and I, uh, looking back, you know, had been driving not in a holy way or speaking in a holy way to my steering wheel or you know, just frustrated, right? And I, I get to the cabin and I, I see all the cars are here, all the lights are on and nobody's in there. There's sleeping bags, there's all kinds of, I mean, it's, people were here, but no one is here. They were out in the woods, they started a campfire. I don't know where they are. What am I thinking? I miss, I'm, I've not been raptured. Why am I thinking that? I shouldn't have drove that way. I shouldn't have sped or whatever. Like, that was the one thing. My, you might not be as weird as me, but I mean, it's easy to, this thing, C. Baxter Kruger calls the dastardly trick, which is to receive the gospel, but to hear a lie at the same time. It's to, it's to change verses, it's as easy to do, change verses like John 3, 16 to, instead of saying, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son to, for God was so angry at you, he killed his son. It's like this weird, like it's close, it's like I, I receive it, but I feel like, and then, and then you carry this shame around. This is how God views me, you know. 
even find myself this week like Googling and, and like textual criticism of Zephaniah 3 to just make sure this wasn't added by somebody else later. Whatever, why am I so, why is it easy for me to believe the first two thirds of this is legit and the last part of this is, is not? Both Old and New Testament, God hates sin and God at the same time carries an a love for you, a love for us. God's wrath and God's love are not symmetrical. The Bible says God is love. There's no Bible verse that says God is wrath. It's connected. But I just can't stop looking at this and counting 29 different promises made by the Lord in these 11 verses. Can we let a win be a win? <laughs> Can we hear the voice of the Lord anymore tell us over 11, uh, at 11 times, I will, just the words, I will do this. Two sections, quotes from God, and then in the middle, there's like an exhortation to sing. This first section, then I will purify the lips of the people that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. For far beyond the rivers of Africa, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me a sacrifice, an offering. I, uh, I read this and I just start thinking about a reality and a hope someday where there won't be, a, there won't be games being played with how we worship God. I mean, does anybody else ever feel like um, just sort of divided at times in your heart and desire an undivided heart? You ever feel like, you know what, I, I wish that I could just not have to deal with all the stuff I deal with and I wanna just come to the Lord and have, and have a purified heart, a purified lips. Well, there is hope and the day is coming where the Lord will purify us and our lives is not gonna be like a robot or a Stepford wife or something. It's gonna be you. We are going to be redeemed and we will be able to come before the Lord without all of our baggage. We'll be able to come before the Lord without playing any games. I mean, does anybody feel like just you wanna be free from things that you're addicted to and things that you've become accustomed to and you just feel like you can't get away from it? A day is coming. And, and God is not asking you to do anything but to just believe in him and believe that he will. He will do this for you. Receive him as the one who makes us clean. He accomplishes this through the blood of Christ and he started it through his Holy Spirit at work in us even now. And he who began a good work will bring it to completion. I believe it. The second section uh, here is this call to sing. Sing aloud, uh, in verse 14, daughter of Zion. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. I would title the song, you know, if we, if we were to make it to a song, you have permission. You have permission to be excited or to be uh, full of joy that you have a God who loves you. You have a God who will redeem you. You have permission to actually be glad and not have to second guess this. You have permission to receive this and to uh, celebrate this and to raise a glass to God and to take this in and bank on it. You have permission to challenge your fears 
The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The king of kings is with you. Never again will you fear harm. You have, what are you afraid of? What is the fear? That, you, that you'll be left behind? You have permission to challenge that fear. Permission to say to that fear, I'm not so sure you know what you're talking about. <clears throat> permission to say to anything that's uh, challenging your identity and telling you if you really were, then, what, then you wouldn't. If you really were, then prove it. You have permission to say, no, I am going to rest. I'm gonna rest in God's love. He delights in you. And you have permission to just hear him sing a song over you. I know we're not supposed to sing songs about ourselves, you know. There's a big thing. We gotta just sing the songs about Jesus or whatever, but what song is he singing? Maybe he's singing a song about you. You permission to receive that, to join him in it, to, to celebrate your relationship with God. He loves you. The last thing I wanna point out is verse 18 to 20. I'll remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your point of festivals, which is a burden and a reproach to you. I would uh, paraphrase this section to say, it will be better. For those of you who mourn, maybe you're the nostalgic types like me, you say, okay, well, those, the good old days are gone or whatever. He actually says, this is kind of a shame. <laughs> it will be better. Join the, join the apostles. Join the New Testament church who in every single letter, except for one, I think it's because it's too short, have an actual articulation of desire that the Lord return as soon as possible. I know, I used to dread it, I used to think, oh no, like I'm gonna be in trouble, but guess what? It will be better for the return of the Messiah. This is not as good as it's gonna be if you're enjoying this, <laughs> this life. I, maybe you aren't and you're, and you're already there, but trust me, it will be better when the Messiah returns. It will be better when he comes and restores this land and when he comes and uh, sets people free, like it says here, I will, I will set free the oppressed, I will help the lame, I will help the refugee, I will bring you home. It's going to be better. And I want our hearts to be raptured up into that uh, reality. And to be a people who can pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And a people who can say, if I truly believe that it will be better, I'm not gonna settle for trying to make this life the best life that it could possibly be. I'm actually gonna bank on the resurrection. Because I believe it'll be better. Come Lord Jesus, come. That's all I was thinking about saying about this. So let's just pray about it and uh, respond. Jesus, you're our champion. You are the warrior. Conquered all of our fear. Wash us free from all of our idolatry. Sing over us a song of uh, identity. Tell us about how you love us. And we'll respond from there. Thank you for not leaving us with just chapters one and two and uh, the first half of chapter three and causing us to be motivated by guilt and shame or whatever. It, it, motivate us by your love. We love because you first loved us. You didn't have to say any of this. But because you love us, you, in a culture that lost the Bible, in a culture that was doing all kinds of bad things, you know all that's true and you're still here to say, but guess what? I'm gonna turn this around for you. I will do this. 
And we receive you as that God. We thank you for that. We're so proud of you. Help us to live a life that honors that. Amen.